Episode 7, Miss Me With That Trick Bag. Section 1, Early Years Inside. It's November of 1997, and I'm in general population at FCI Sheridan, a federal correctional institution in Sheridan, Oregon. I'm seven months into a 76-month sentence for a solo armed bank robbery. I'm 26 years old. Prisons have changed some since I was incarcerated. Weight piles, the weight machines and free weights used by prisoners, are currently being phased out. In federal prisons, tobacco was prohibited in 2006. Pornography was prohibited from being sent in via the mail while I was serving time. Sheridan FCI has four housing units in one half of the facility, and these are funneled through a guard shack with a metal detector referred to as, reasonably enough, the metal shack. On the other half of the compound is everything else. There's a chow hall here with a large institutional food service space behind it and the recreation yard. There's a chapel, some classrooms, medical and dental, and commissary on this side of the metal shack. There's also maintenance offices, a library mostly consisting of a law library, laundry, and the visiting room. Administrative offices that convicts never access, and a separate building built for a drug treatment program are here. The Unicor Federal Prison Industries Furniture Factory is also on this side of the metal shack. This side of the FCI also has the doors through which you enter or leave your incarceration. The locals didn't want guard towers when the prison was being planned, so as a compromise, the prison built steep hills where corrections officers with M16s and binoculars sit in pickup trucks just outside the perimeter. That was related to me by other prisoners on site. The local community counts the prisoners as part of the city population, but Oregon also moved in to disenfranchise prisoners at Sheridan in 1999, passing an Oregon law barring incarcerated federal prisoners from voting, including in local elections. The entire facility is surrounded by two high chain-link fences topped with razor wire. The 30-foot gap in between the first fence and the second fence is filled with about eight rolls of razor wire in three-foot continuous loops piled against the base of the inside fence. The barriers are wired with sensors and dotted with cameras. Indigenous peoples are overrepresented in federal prison because major crimes on tribal lands fall under federal jurisdiction. There was a small, lightly wooded outside area in the prison for religious services that was composed of a sweat lodge and a Wiccan grove which overlapped with a Norse religious group. The grove had come about due to religious freedom lawsuits. At Sheridan FCI, each of the four housing units has an A and a B side. Administration offices sit in the center between the A and B sides. Each side has two tiers of cells looking into an open triangular space in the center of the unit. Four single-person showers on each tier, a laundry room and two TV rooms, four microwaves, a duty office for the correctional officers, a bookshelf of a few hundred well-used paperbacks down on the edge of the triangle, a phone room with four phones that you could use when the cells were unlocked. In 1997, Sheridan FCI still had prisoners in bunk beds out in the center of each housing unit, referred to as the triangle, about 32 additional prisoners in each housing unit as overflow housing. Housing units could be loud, doors opening, closing, locking, and unlocking. Most prisoners made makeshift speakers out of their headphones, so music sounded from individual cells. Often the smell of cooking, as someone used a microwave to make spam, bean, and instant rice burritos, or ramen noodles. A couple COs with keys jangling and radios squawking. Prisoners talking. In the smoking units, while you weren't allowed to smoke in shared areas, you could smoke in your cell, so they would smell like cigarettes. Everything is painted cinder blocks, wax floor tiles and steel frames, echoing sounds. COs yelling to announce count time, or lockdown, or opening the doors to the housing unit for chow, or work. Initially, I was assigned a bunk out in the triangle. As weeks passed and prisoners were transferred, released, or sent to the hole, a bunk in a cell would open up. A few of the incarcerated stayed out in the triangle because they had issues with others, or else mental illness that created barriers to getting into a cell. But the priority for most of us was to get out of the triangle open barracks and into a two-person cell. Corrections officers, unions, had taken the Bureau of Prisons to court 
over the overflow housing open barracks, citing conditions as a safety issue in a medium security facility. Prisoners who had been at Sheridan longer would share information about the operations with newer prisoners who showed curiosity. This is how I learned of the history. Prisoners do pay attention to the courts, as a number of prisoners are always fighting their appeals. While I was incarcerated at Sheridan FCI, half the bottom tier of each housing unit was converted from two-man cells into three-man cells, and the open barracks in the triangle removed. I want to be clear that a three-man cell was just more people crammed into the same small space originally designed to house fewer prisoners. So normal bunk beds on one wall, and a third bunk on the opposite wall, with not much of an aisle between, and a sink and toilet and half lockers all in the same square footage. Your main goal in a three-man cell was getting the fuck out of there and into a two-man cell as soon as possible. Prisoners in a cell with an open bunk would both be approached or would generally approach someone about moving into the cell. If you don't tell the CO that you have someone who wants to move into your cell, they will assign someone. Usually prisoners select by race, but also compatibility. Smoker, for example, or sports fan, or lifestyle. A celly who works all day and spends a lot of time in recreation is great. They aren't in the cell that much. You might only see your celly at count time and a lockdown to sleep, or you might both be locked down in the cell for days depending on conditions, like a food strike. So you're looking for compatibility. An introvert or an extrovert, a snorer, personal hygiene level. Most of the calculations boil down to, is this person going to get on my nerves? A person with a snitch jacket, someone known to have testified against other prisoners for reduced sentence, for example, would also be grounds for refusal to sell with someone. If you had concerns and wanted to get into it, you could tell the convict you wanted to see his paperwork, court info on his charges that would relate whether they snitched. Asking someone for their paperwork can be tricky. It's fucking close to accusing the person of snitching, and that's a reputational charge, which can carry consequences inside. When I got to general population at FCI Sheridan after seven months of jail, I was the kind of Sally who spent a fair amount of time in his bunk reading or drawing. I was trying to be the kind of Sally who was relatively easy to get along with and clean, not bringing drama to the cell or too many visitors, giving the Sally some time alone in the cell to take a shit or masturbate or chill out. The cell doors were solid except for a locked tray slot and a narrow reinforced glass window, maybe 12 inches by 4 inches. You couldn't demand privacy in your cell. Corrections officers would walk the unit looking in cells, and you weren't allowed to cover the window. That said, it's nice to have privacy while taking a dump, and especially while masturbating, so prisoners usually would slip an envelope over part of the window or between the door and the door jamb to indicate occupied when the cells weren't in lockdown and your other cellie or cellies were out. A few days after hitting general population, I was assigned basic work in the chow hall. Once it was clear I had food handling experience, I was able to get a job in vegetable preparation. Veg prep means being locked in a windowed room attached to a vegetable walk-in cooler with four other guys, knives cabled to the tables, prepping ingredients and salads. One of the older guys in veg prep had a running joke where he would pretend to take extreme offense and then bring his 10-inch kitchen knife forward as if to stab you, but the cable lock between the knife and the table would cause the knife to stop short. He would lean into the cable, pretend straining to reach. We would all chuckle. Working in veg prep was a pay increase from 17 cents to 49 cents an hour. We peeled a lot of potatoes, chopped a lot of onions, and made a lot of carrot, mayonnaise, and raisin salads. In prison, your manager is always a corrections officer or prison staff, and this makes the relationship clear. You are the involuntary labor, and those are your captors and bosses. Don't get me wrong, there are competent and incompetent managers inside and outside prison. Your purpose isn't to hate managers, simply to recognize the insurmountable class divide and separate motivations and drives. The manager's job is to get the most work and value out of you for the least money and benefits. The manager expects and demands loyalty, but the manager's loyalty is not to the workers. By design, it cannot be allowed under capitalism. The manager's loyalty is to shareholders, owners, and more importantly, to profit. A friend who is an organizer and union representative says 50% of his job is helping workers understand that the boss is not your friend. The new age of faceless remote managers, or being managed via app, is frustrating and encourages the excesses of remote interactions. Workers more easily dehumanized into widgets or inputs on a spreadsheet. 
In contrast, in prison your oppressor or their board representatives generally have to oppress you to your face and at the extremes have to recognize their actions can have consequences. They can be touched. Commissary, the prison store, gives you access to a radio Walkman, gym sweats, decent boxers and socks, tennis shoes, soap, shampoo, and of course food, snacks, and treats. Commissary was every other week for the housing unit, and you submitted a list which was then filled. If you had the funds, they would be deducted from your prisoner account, called your books. No funds, no commissary. A radio and a pair of sweats, and you can feel almost human walking around the prison yard. Many people in prison have some sort of prison hustle, meaning a way to make income outside the forced labor. If you work in the chow hall, you likely smuggle food back to the housing unit. In the housing unit, someone usually runs a commissary store. There's often a smut king, someone with pornography to trade. In most housing units, someone does tattoo work. Someone has a laundry hustle or a sewing hustle modifying clothing. Every housing unit definitely has a bookie or a runner for a bookie for sports bets. If you know the right people, you can get pruno, prison wine, or a drug connection. If you know the right person and have books of stamps or money to purchase commissary, you can get a layer of upholstery foam from the furniture factory smuggled back to your housing unit and sewn into your thin-ass mattress, or a maintenance crew to slightly adjust the position of your bunks in your cell. Once I was at Sheridan FCI, I signed up for the 500-hour, 9-month drug treatment program on site and was assigned to the housing unit where all the drug treatment prisoners were grouped. I signed up mostly because I wanted something to keep me from being transferred out of state to a lower security prison. Most prisons didn't have drug treatment, so signing up could keep me closer to Ms. Sunder. I learned of the drug treatment hold tactic through other prisoners when I expressed concern about being transferred. Prisoners regularly pooled knowledge and skills. Lower security levels are assigned to prisoners with less violence on their record or who have little time left on their sentence. There's more cells open at lower security prisons, and these prisons are cheaper to staff and operate, so there's continual pressure to move prisoners to lower security facilities. The lower security prisons have shittier guards, less activities, and more inmates without class consciousness. The higher churn means more incarcerated people focusing on their release plans rather than on conditions inside. Guards who are abusive, authoritarian, or who escalate problems generally get kicked up ranks to administration or else down to low security facilities and camps where prisoners have more to lose and have less time. A guard who wants to make punishment personal to prisoners in high security facilities will get themselves and other guards and prisoners hurt or killed due to their incompetence. The few competent staff recognize this and generally act to get fools out of regular contact with prisoners. Sometimes while incarcerated, you get COs trying to tell a prisoner about how many years of experience they have, comparing their years as a corrections officer to time served. The common response that most prisoners would give was, Yeah, I live here. You? You just work here. A person serving 20, 30 years to multiple life sentences being harassed where they live, and will likely die, may take matters into their own hands and resort to violence. Smart COs understand it's bad practice to make punishment personal, in a place where you can be physically accessed. While I was at Sheridan, there were a few high-profile prisoners in the facility. One was Dr. Jeffrey McDonald, the former Green Beret doctor convicted of murdering his family in 1970 on a military base. This case was made famous by Joe McGinnis's book, Fatal Vision, published in 1983. Prison staff hated Doc McDonald because of his high-profile status but also because other incarcerated men would ask him for medical advice and he would give it, which would drive the prison doctors seriously fucking crazy. McDonald is still in federal prison today. Christopher Boyce, a.k.a. The Falcon, was at Sheridan FCI while I was there. He was convicted of spying for the Soviets in 1970. His case made famous in The Falcon and the Snowman 1979 book and 1985 movie, starring Timothy Hutton and Sean Penn. Boyce had escaped from USP Lompoc, California, in 1980 and committed a string of bank robberies while on the run. He was rearrested and then, by his account, nearly murdered by prison guards once he was returned to prison. 
He had been inside Florence Supermax, according to Boyce, as a retaliation for writing a newspaper article. He was released in 2002. Boyce married after his release and published a book in 2013 about his escape and prison time. I had done some yoga and meditation before going to jail or prison. Inside, I met a few men who had a yoga group going and I joined. I started meditating with a few guys. A Zen teacher visited periodically and sat in meditation with prisoners. A Buddhist monk of the Tibetan tradition visited periodically and sat with us. Our meditation group also watched a lot of videos from Gangaji, a disciple of Sri Ramana Maharshi. Most weekends, Ms. Sunder would come visit. We would sit together in the prison visiting room and talk. Often you could take a visiting room photo. Corrections officers watched people visiting with their families and friends and cautioned incarcerated men about physical contact. When my spouse and I visited, we talked about Ms. Sunder completing a master's in acupuncture, about her parents, mutual friends, and her work, and we spoke of conditions inside. I had different cellies over the years. Most in the later years had similar interests in meditation and yoga, and I worked a fair amount, so I wasn't always in the cell. I celled with Marvell for about a year in the first half of my sentence, a confident and insightful black dude with green eyes and a wicked sense of humor. He asked me if I wanted to sell with him, I think mostly because the black dude options for Selly weren't great in the housing unit at the time. Some guys with a little too much drama or gambling debts or maybe just a personality conflict. I think Marvell also asked me because Marvell liked to fuck with people's expectations. Me moving into his cell wasn't particularly liked by three groupings. Black prisoners in the unit who had wanted to move into the cell, white supremacists who didn't like white prisoners selling with black prisoners, and penitentiary heads, incarcerated men whose rule set comes from a higher security prison where you don't want to ask a Sally to choose between you and their race during a race riot. At medium security Sheridan FCI, this was a little less likely a risk compared to a high security USP. Marvell handled the black dude's complaints, I think mostly by making it clear in a casual way that his decisions about Sally weren't open to review, and that if they took it personal, that was their problem. The white supremacists knew me, but I wasn't in their sphere of influence, and I didn't roll with them, so they didn't pursue it, though they clearly didn't like it. White people were about a third of the prison population, and of those, roughly 400 white men, I would say 5% were avowed open white supremacists with Nazi tattoos and prison gang affiliations, with another 10% white supremacists in rhetoric and lots of casual racism. But as a subsection of a minority grouping, they didn't particularly have a lot of power outside their own ranks. I think they sized up white convicts to see if they could be brought into their ranks or swayed with their race rhetoric, and those who weren't interested, they mostly ignored. One white supremacist noticed I had regular visits and low-key solicited me for smuggling in drugs. There's a phrase I learned in prison, trick bag. A trick bag is defined as a situation where nearly all paths lead to a disastrous outcome, or a situation intentionally designed to leave you screwed, due to the malice of the participants. A lot of your focus inside prison is to avoid getting into trick bags, navigating away from especially manipulative, foolish, or violent guards and prisoners. Not getting yourself in a bind in the first place. The offer from the white supremacist is an example of a trick bag. Saying no could have costs if they decided the decline had some disrespect attached, or if they thought I could be intimidated or coerced into agreeing. Saying yes would put me in business with white supremacists, open myself and my spouse up to drug charges and new prosecution, and give my newfound prison, quote, business partners, unquote, information to hold over me or use against me. That's a trick bag for sure. The way to avoid trick bags is mostly to keep your head up and slow the fuck down when you start feeling pushed towards engagement with a risk. And avoid compromising positions like being in debt to someone, having debts one can't pay, or getting involved in business where your partners can make you the patsy if they need to save themselves. I told the white supremacist no, I wasn't interested, and ended the conversation shortly after. They fortunately, mostly, dropped the subject. My Sully Marvell worked in the prison furniture factory with lots of other prisoners. He worked alongside a white supremacist. Marvell would interact about work and be civil to the guy. The guy would be civil back in that one-on-one -on -one interaction. One day Marvell was out on the recreation yard and he nodded to the white supremacist and said hello. The white supremacist, who was walking the track with his road dogs, other white dudes and likely white supremacists he worked out with, 
ignored Marvell. So Marvell, next shift at work, pulls up the white supremacist and with a smile on his face, tells him if this dude ignores him again, even if he's rolling with his white supremacist road dogs, that's a problem for Marvell. In fact, if he doesn't get a hello back, Marvell tells the guy he's going to fight him, and if he knocks the supremacist out, penitentiary rules will apply. Penitentiary rules is a prison phrase which means, if I knock you out, I may also sexually assault or rape your unconscious body. It's a pretty aggressive escalation, in this case meant as very dark humor. But Marvell was the kind of guy with enough poise, confidence, and physical skill to back it up. Next time he was out on the yard, the white supremacist sees him and without prompting says, Hi Marvell. I mostly steered clear of white supremacists when possible, but there were certainly a lot of white supremacist adjacent folks and overt racism in prison. Way more white prisoners than I'd liked referred to Martin Luther King Day as James Earl Ray Day and used racial epithets casually around other white prisoners. I didn't spend my time arguing with white supremacists, but I did push back if someone started talking about racial purity. I would say, you mean like royalty? Aren't they inbred and all messed up? Purity sounds like the shallow end of the gene pool. I wouldn't invest in an argument, just drop in a counter casually from time to time. I don't know exactly how other prisoners saw me, but I definitely didn't carry much in status inside. I was an artist, active in a couple groups, a decent co-worker, and not caught up in drama, if naive. I'm skinny, tall, but not particularly intimidating. I had very few illusions about my rudimentary fighting skills. I've been in fights as an adult, but never trained particularly more than a few martial arts classes some years before in my early 20s. I came close to getting in fights a couple times. When I pushed an issue too far or misjudged a comment and the other person felt disrespected. But honestly, those confrontations were pretty rare in an overcrowded place full of often emotionally immature men lacking in problem-solving skills that didn't involve violence. That said, I was never assaulted nor particularly targeted in prison by other prisoners. A few incarcerated men would test me, see if I was easily manipulated or scared. I wasn't. I think three factors were at play. First, little profit. I had no resources, so there was no monetary incentive. Secondly, violence mostly gets caught at Sheridan FCI, at least back then. If the attack is witnessed at all, the likelihood of it getting back to the staff is almost certain. If a prisoner is found injured, anywhere from the worksite to the entire facility may be locked down. Prisoners would be required to strip down to boxers or just shirts off sometimes and present their hands and upper body for inspection. The corrections officers would look for injuries sustained in a fight. Consequences to getting caught assaulting another prisoner can be losing good time, transfer, a new felony charge, or all three. The third factor was, if you knew my background, you knew I was capable of violence, the throw-your-life-away kind of violence. I had shown prior will and follow-through. In the fishbowl of prison, anyone can get to anyone and make escalating reprisals, especially if they aren't worried about getting caught. I was also not isolated. I knew and was friendly with other convicts, a number of whom were doing long sentences and were well-respected in the prison. This took about two years to cultivate, though I built some friendships in the first six months two years to become a known quantity and to get to know other prisoners in my housing unit, in the meditation and yoga groups, at work in the prison kitchen, and then in later years in the prison furniture factory. Working in the chow hall meant I had to get up early, which means a CO comes around your cells in this housing unit and unlocks your cell door momentarily to get you to work. If you forgot to set your alarm or slept through it and the CO goes to unlock the cell door and you aren't ready, then chances are now you're fucking up the rotation of prisoners and the count, so you're going to the hole. That's how I ended up in the hole a second time, one morning I forgot to set my alarm and was dead asleep when the CO came to release me for work. Going to the hole sucks because you are guaranteed to lose a fair amount of personal property, and you lose your job and your cell assignment. You don't get access to much of your property inside the hole. When you go to the hole, a CO supposedly tosses your personal property from your cell locker into a mesh bag. In reality, less than half your personal effects may actually make it into a bag. If you have more than can fit into one bag easily, it is likely to be thrown out or scattered to the winds. In the hole, you have to fill out a request form for personal property, which is usually restricted to legal papers, mail, toiletry, maybe a couple items from your personal property like a religious text or book. When you eventually come back out of the hole, you often have to start over. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very...
very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center, and we have unconfirmed reports this morning that a plane has crashed into one of the towers. September 11, 2001, inside the carceral state, was weird. The Federal Correctional Institution in rural Oregon locked down not long after the second plane hit. As far as I know, all the federal prisons locked down. And everybody sat in their cells listening to the news on radio Walkmans. There were a few televisions mounted up high out in the triangular center areas of each housing unit. And these were tuned to CNN. You could dial in the audio on your radio Walkman. The vast majority of federal prison staff are military veterans, so they get excited about the attack. A fair amount of incarcerated men also express nationalist fervor and anger at the attack. When they hear about the blood drives occurring across the U.S., a delegation of prisoners asks the warden if prisoners can donate blood. All I could think when I learned of 9-11 was how the U.S. was going to bomb and murder people somewhere in massive reprisals and change nothing in our foreign policy. How our government was going to use 9-11 to write another blank check on foreign wars. Today, the $8 trillion the U.S. has to date invested in death and destruction could have been spent on infrastructure, on universal health care, on phasing out fossil fuels, on affordable housing, on high-speed passenger rail, on effective and free mass transit in every city. My second Christmas in prison, I'm offered and accept a couple puffs off a marijuana joint, my drug of choice, and then spend 30 days worrying about getting drug tested. If another prisoner knows you use, they can use that information or tell someone who will use that information. You can get snitched on to prison staff, and that rat will trade the information for getting out of their own dirty piss test or some other charge. I don't want to lose good time and start seriously thinking about my goals. At the time, my goals had mostly been to get through my sentence and to stay out of prison and not much else. Ms. Sunder and I talked about having kids or a child after prison. I recommit to staying focused on getting out. Every night, I climb into my bunk in my cell and look at the metal ceiling above my head. I've been here long enough now to see some prisoners get released and then return on a parole violation or new charge. I don't want to come back to prison. The guys with long sentences here grind their teeth when they see the same person released sometimes three times or more, all while they wait for the day. Show me the gate, they say. You'll never see me back here. I'm never coming back. Some of the men I consider friends from my time incarcerated will get out of prison and then die. Tony, a guy in his 20s who loved comedy, will suicide by cop not long after getting out. Jason, a sharp-witted guy in his early 30s, who had been serving time off and on since his juvenile days, who earned a personal trainer's diploma while incarcerated. Jason will die of a heroin overdose eight months out of prison on a sidewalk. Another man I knew for years in prison, a florist by trade, completing an 11-year sentence, I will see living homeless within six months of his release. While inside, I will meet a number of men who use their prison time to better themselves and to reflect upon their lives. I continue to honor and respect how some of these mentors navigated their life inside, and I appreciate their principles and wisdom that benefited an emotionally immature white boy in his late 20s. Hi, I'm Brian, the host of Sunder. In the podcast, I've walked you through an armed bank robbery I committed in 1997 and the aftermath, including a 76-month sentence in a federal medium security prison. True crime and prison time from the inside perspective. I'll also be discussing politics as a volunteer labor organizer and committed socialist, so it is a political podcast. And lastly, I will talk about how to take action and be an agent of change in this world, in your community, right now how you can break free of feeling powerless to change conditions and joyously fight for collective liberation. You and I have this critical decade to forge the mass movement required to change conditions and build a future worth having. Let's do this together, one step at a time. Welcome to Sunder. What does being in that system mean? So in America, there are uh, about 100 million people with a record. Like, let that sink in. 100 million people in America right now 
had some sort of arrest or conviction on their record. That's more than the entire population of Canada. They face what is called collateral consequences. These are social, civil, and economic sanctions that kick in after you serve your time. 70% are lifetime bans, and more than half are employment-related. We're talking about banning people from entire sectors, insurance, real estate, education, healthcare, finance. If you have a felony conviction, you are banned from healthcare and from real estate. For life. For life. That's just the economic impacts, right? The social impacts are even worse. I have a record. 20 years ago, fresh out of high school, was involved with a robbery, right? Did seven years, got out, it's been 11 years since I've been out. Right. My kids are two and four. I'm getting choked up because this is, it hits home. Mm-hmm. My kids are two and four. And we got a schedule from summer, for summer school. And there were field trips on there. And they said, what parents want to chaperone the field trips? I can't chaperone his field trips. My wife is 46 years old, I'm 38. We want to have a girl. But it's a high-risk pregnancy. So I said, hey, let's figure out adoption. We can never adopt a kid. I love, I, I love the fact that we live in a country where we talk about second chances and redemption and one nation under a God. But, like, my soul can be redeemed, but that record stays there for life. Section 2, Anti-Fascism. When you plug the term anti-fascist into a historical timeline of usage, the term enters consciousness in the 1920s, peaks in 1945, then recedes, only to start a long climb. The term was used the most in 2020, and now again shows some decline. The Allied soldiers that fought in World War II were anti-fascist in that they were fighting and killing fascists and soldiers of fascist regimes. These are the most direct and clear anti-fascists. Between 9 and 11 million Soviet soldiers died to defeat fascism. Lyudmila Pavlichenko, a woman sniper in the Soviet army, killed 309 fascists and toured the U.S. to bolster support for the war effort against fascism. Between 3 and 4 million Chinese soldiers died in World War II fighting against Japanese fascists. Over 400,000 U.S. soldiers died in World War II to overcome the spread of fascism. The most highly decorated U.S. Marine in history is Audie Murphy, He was an anti-fascist. The soldiers that fought against Franco in Spain were anti-fascist. Anti-fascists that lived in Italy, Japan, Germany, and the countries the fascist troops occupied waged clandestine and asymmetrical wars against the powerful fascist regimes that controlled their lives. Some of the bravest and most dedicated freedom fighters of history who risked everything and often paid with their lives. Yet, when the fascist regimes fell at the end of the Western campaign of World War II, those same anti-fascists were usually marginalized by the Western powers resetting political power across Europe and Asia. The U.S. interests aligned with the wealthy elites in most of these same nations, the same industrialists and corporate entities who had profited from the war and in many cases used concentration camp labor to further their corporate profits. If someone is unclear on what an anti-fascist role might be, one of the easiest to reference fictional depictions of an anti-fascist is Humphrey Bogart's character Rick Blaine in the film Casablanca. Rick hides and assists those fleeing or fighting the fascists and works to undermine the Nazi occupiers whenever possible. He can't fight them openly in the streets, so he wages an asymmetrical, covert war against the powerful occupying forces. One of the best historical examples of anti-fascist resistance in a non-fascist country at the community level is the Battle of Cable Street in the East End of London in 1936. Sir Oswald Mosley, a fascist politician, was to lead the British Union of Fascists on a march through the center of East End, a predominantly Jewish neighborhood. The British Jewish community, socialist groups, Trade unionists, anarchists, communists, Irish workers, and unaffiliated people together worked to counter-demonstrate. Between 100,000 and 300,000 people stood up en masse to roughly 2,000 to 5,000 fascists and 6,000 to 7,000 police. The majority of the community standing together to say no to fascist hate. Community that knew each other and had built trust, making the solidarity unbreakable and infiltration nearly impossible and making their demands powerful 
Historians cite the Battle of Cable Street as signaling the decline of the British fascist movement. There has been discussion lately whether the label fascist gets used too broadly. Certainly that can occur. Anti-fascists in the U.S. do real work, but it's not the same as World War II, and it shouldn't be mistaken as such. This is a different time and country under different conditions. I think it's important not to overuse the term fascist, but to also understand what people see occurring around them. Government agents in unmarked vehicles kidnapping protesters off the streets in the George Floyd protests in Portland sure fit the profile of how fascist regimes operate. Pointing at the least powerful, lowest castes in our tiered society, the homeless, transgender people, immigrants, and making them the scapegoats for societies, for capitalism's ills, is a familiar strategy out of the fascist playbook. Forcing those with wombs, including children, to carry fetuses to term is the act of an authoritarian regime. After this section, I will play an audio clip of Michael Parenti discussing implementation of fascism. He'll mention some familiar themes rolling back child labor laws, crushing labor unions, massive tax breaks for the wealthy, cutting wages. I don't want to be an alarmist nor reactionary, but I also don't want to put my head in the sand. This sure feels like the gloves coming off. The neoliberal method is preferred, but corporate interests will shift to fascism when the other model is at risk of falling apart or being overthrown. The business plot is an historical example of this. In 1933, a group of men, including prominent business interests and members of the American Legion, met with retired General Smedley Butler, asking him to lead a fascist overthrow of the Roosevelt administration. General Butler described it as a fascist plot in his own testimony to a congressional committee. When business interests feel threatened, they will accede to fascism to maintain their own power. I also want to talk about how fascism was implemented in Germany. The German economy was in decline due to massive war debt of World War I. The streets were filled with homeless veterans of the war, many with PTSD and missing limbs. The Nazis pressed a campaign where they labeled the homeless and the mentally ill as deviants letting society down. Many citizens went along, willing to punch down if it meant they didn't have to see or interact with the homeless. The Nazis labeled the developmentally challenged as, quote, useless eaters, unquote, and took into custody and then murdered hundreds of thousands of people with disabilities. For the others, the solution was work camps, where work would set them on the right path to becoming productive members of society. The Nazis put LGBT folk in these, quote, work camps, unquote, and ethnic minorities, special focus on Jewish people, but also Roma peoples known as gypsies, and also political groupings like communists and anarchists. The, quote, work camps, unquote, are, of course, concentration camps, which itself is a softened euphemism for slave labor and death camps, with the famous slogan, work will set you free over the gates of many. Now think about your local government and media and their orientation towards houseless people and families today. In Canada, a recent poll on acceptable reasons for approving assisted suicide requests included a quarter of respondents believing that an acceptable reason would be poverty or homelessness. State-assisted suicide for the condition of poverty or homelessness raises some red flags for me, and I hope it does for you. Think about librarians getting death threats for booking drag queens to read at story hours, and teachers being labeled as groomers. Bomb threats called into hospitals where gender-affirming care takes place. The undertone of a heavily propagandized people as their lives are getting worse and looking for an explanation is scary when you have congressional representatives talking about, quote, Jewish space lasers, unquote, or media figures and politicians claiming health care workers are criminals for providing medical care for transgender youth or for providing abortion services. The powerful will always point towards scapegoats. Divide and conquer is always the playbook. The coordinated attack on January 6, 2021 in Washington, D.C. had quite a contingent of Proud Boys and Oath Keepers. It also consisted of a number of regional business owners, capitalists who were quite convinced that what was required was storming Congress and installing a pro-business, nationalist dictator. My question is to you, the listener. How do you want people to respond when fascists come to town? And, as importantly, what do you believe prevents the rise of fascism? In healthcare facilities, quiet, polite patients die first. 
They get ignored or missed or abused, and no one knows, no one hears, and no one is troubled. Assertive and loud patients live longer. They won't go quietly. They won't be ignored. Similarly, when organizing, some people are conflict-averse and value lack of conflict over justice. They want to not be stressed, to not have to choose sides, to not have to stand for something. They go with whatever asks the least of them, including never making a decision or always choosing the option of seeing if it will go away if they keep ignoring the issue. They will press the case that the best course of action is to ignore the Nazis. They want attention, just don't give it to them, they will say. When Nazis come to your town, ignoring them doesn't work. Giving them space over and over to act without repercussions is a loss to your community and sends a message that you can be preyed upon. In Portland, when they didn't have counter-protests, the bigots and racists would break up into small roving groups looking for people to harass and attack, hospitalizing individuals in some cases. The way it has gone down in recent years in Portland is when Proud Boys or Patriot Prayer or the KKK decide to rally and march in Portland, then anti-fascists show up to oppose them and protest. This can be a number of organizations and can include a lot of different tactics. Some include dance parties staged by Pop Mob. Some tactics include a huge brass band all dressed like bananas, referred to as Banana Block. In Portland, historically, DSA has been one of the groups to show up to oppose fascists and racists. Usually among the counter-protesters, the largest contingent is folks dressed in black block, made up of a number of anti-fascist organizations. Then the police stand in the middle, with their backs to the racists and fascists and bigots, and their weapons all pointed at the anti-fascists. The city government and police work hard to simultaneously shrug, quote, there's nothing we can do, unquote, while painting the response to the racists, the white supremacists, and to the outright fascists as the problem. It is galling to see hate groups that mostly convoy into Portland, a city they publicly loathe and slander, get a friendlier response from the city leaders than the residents living in the city that don't want violent bigots and fascists dictating life in Portland. That's not how I would like it to go down. It's the trick bag I referenced earlier. Instead of getting depicted rhetorically as outside the community and standing alone, I would like anti-fascists to find common cause with religious and labor communities to rally with communities of color, with LGBT groups around the city, and to say we reject Nazis coming to town together. I would love Portlanders to stage rallies and marches and say we live here together, don't roll in a town selling fascism. Portland isn't your staging ground. You don't get to roam the streets looking for immigrants, for queer and trans folk, for people of color to harass and assault. That's a community in solidarity. There's been some work towards this, but there's a lot of bridges to build and maintain to get there. A lot of the most reckless and violent Proud Boys and militia members who like to rally into Portland over the last few years are now in prison serving sentences. The leaders of these racist and fascist organizations were almost entirely federal informants and their organizations heavily infiltrated. The police and media would love to have leftists in the same position and to paint the left as violent extremists. Despite the spate of arrests, there are signs that the incursions and attacks are far from over. Death threats and disruptions to places that have drag queen story hours. School board meetings where teachers are accused of being groomers. The rampant demonizing, hatred, and violence expressed towards houseless folk. Threats against pride events. Forefronting more tactics like banana block and pop mob mobile dance parties and undermining the pay value bigots get from the confrontation is one of the best plays to make and should be the standard whenever possible. It's hard for them to feel like badasses in their body armor and military surplus gear when human-sized bananas are playing trombones and dancing their hearts out. South African activists during apartheid were famous for singing and dancing in mass and protests. Locally, I've seen Sunrise and 350PDX incorporate singing into protests at picket lines for Nabisco and Starbucks as well, and I love it. Let us sing together. Here's South African firefighters arriving in Edmonton, Canada to fight wildfires.
I attended some of the protests and rallies against fascists. I'm a middle-aged guy with a mortgage and a family and a job. I'm not masked up, not in black block. I'm in DSA colors because I am part of DSA. But I don't particularly want more black block. I want more, quote, regular, unquote, citizens of Portland engaged through organized coalitions. Immigrant worker advocacy groups, religious leaders and their assemblies, union members, LGBT groups, community groups. I want that coalition to make it clear that the community stands together instead of standing outside or being depicted as a third party by the police and media and hack politicians. I want to express gratitude to anti-fascist organizations because I believe a lot of the work they do to track and monitor fascists is unrecognized and is valuable. At the same time, I want to have a side discussion of the tactics of Black Bloc. Large numbers of masked and anonymous individuals is the easiest and most common point of infiltration by police. There are numerous documented cases of law enforcement infiltrating locally in exactly this way. Groups of anonymous individuals without a clear command structure lack discipline, which means then tactics may not be agreed upon or move forward any demands. Agent provocateurs and individuals without discipline can destroy the credibility of the group or derail any plans to win clear demands. Counter-protesting is simply a tactic, not the tactic. Only organized mass politics defeats fascism, changes conditions, or transforms society. The civil rights movement of the 1960s was organized mass politics. Black bloc fighting fascists in the streets is at best a defensive measure that teaches a minority the importance of a certain kind of possibly effective resistance, and at worst a rejection of mass politics and a lack of influence and reach within the community. It tends to turn off civilians and lead them to false equivalencies, that people fighting the fascists in the street are just another group of bad or scary people, all the same. Street confrontations are a tactic. Strategy should define the tactics, not the other way around. Make sure, if counter-demonstrating, that it is the right tool for the job and moves forward community demands. Prepare ahead of time and take deliberate steps we'll talk about in the third section that help keep your people disciplined. Last note, property damage. I bring this up only because when there's a protest, property damage is what is reported on in the media more often than not. Property damage is used as a wedge issue by politicians, police, and the business-friendly media. These groups use the fear of property damage to try and keep the average citizenry seeing anti-fascists as an unruly mob and not part of a local community. I don't get particularly worked up about it. What I always want to know is this. Is the property damage part of a plan that wins demands, or is it something else? Because often it seems like a lack of discipline in the ranks leading to an unnecessary escalation, or the work of an agent provocateur creating property damage to justify police attacks. If property damage takes away from your messaging, then build discipline in the ranks to prevent its use unless the tactic explicitly fits the overall strategy. All this to say, I identify as an anti-fascist. I have nothing but respect for local established anti-fascist organizations. Most importantly, I don't want fascism, and when Nazis come to town, I'm not down with that. I'm a labor organizer, which requires some idealism, but I take extra care not to be one of those people who make calls for general strikes on the internet, because that shows a deep lack of understanding of what it takes to get to a general strike and a lack of understanding of current conditions. In the same way, I'm an anti-fascist, but I take extra care not to dress that up too much. I'm not fighting Nazis during World War II and a clandestine war. No one is. That's a different time. I'm an anti-fascist that doesn't want authoritarian, nationalistic, and bigoted people attacking minorities and at-risk groups as scapegoats for the underlying inequalities of our economic and political system. I can stand with my community against fascists. I hope you are standing too. What they did when they came into power, one of the untouched subjects in modern American scholarship on fascism, the obsession today is who supported Hitler, who supported, who gave the support, who was behind them, and what never seems to be dealt with, the key question, is what did they do when they came into power? What interests did they support? And what they both did, what both, Hitler, what both Hitler and Mussolini did when they came into power was abolish all independent trade unions, smash all opposition newspapers, throw political opponents into jail, round up and murder large numbers of them, cut wages by one-third to one-half, increase 
uh, increase investments in military spending dramatically, increase cartel profits, cut inheritance taxes for the rich, cut taxes for the rich. In Italy, child labor was reintroduced and roll back all, a number of other protections and democratic gains which labor had won, such as social security insurance, uh, occupational safety laws, and, and abuses which the Italians had thought they had eliminated over a generation before returned to the work site. So fascism was a very regressive and costly thing for the working class and was not supported by that working class. Section 3. Solidarity Against the Return of Fascism In this last section, I'm going to talk some about participating in counter-demonstrations, but there are a lot of decent guides that came out during George Floyd, and over 10 million Americans got the chance to practice their skills. Additionally, I'm going to talk about how anti-fascism includes actions other than counter-demonstrations. When in a counter-demonstration, preparation is key. An organizing committee will want to map the terrain, establish a plan, coordinate with a dedicated safety team, front load participants, and be able to adjust tactics in real time. If a march is part of the plan, then reviewing the route ahead of time with a safety team of volunteers is wise. Know whether you are in federal or state jurisdiction as different laws govern those spaces. Contact legal support organizations ahead of time, ACLU observers and National Lawyers Guild members. As importantly, you are connecting with as many community groups as possible to build broader community support. You want the demonstration and its message to focus on the community standing together and why that matters. You are aiming for the larger goal of solidarity broadly across the multiracial and diverse working class and showing what that solidarity looks like. When organizing a counter-protest, it is important to take time to front-load participants and answer concerns and to set basic discipline for the group. You are there for a purpose and have a set mission. Stay focused. A rally point a short distance from the main location to set up and then march into the space is better for all of these purposes and helps your efforts in defining the space rather than allowing law enforcement or militia members, proud boys, or clan members to find it for you. Flags can help you see where your group is and create rally points and help keep the group together. Matched radios can be useful as well for comms. Unless you really, really need it on you, don't bring your phone. If you do, set it to a number or pattern lock, not a face or fingerprint. You can always wrap your phone up in a small chip bag with the reflective foil interior to create a Faraday cage if you really want to get into it. Bring only essentials that you're going to need for the action. Bring water in a disposable bottle to drink, plus for clearing your eyes of bear spray or tear gas. If you can, recruit street medics to attend. Most anti-fascist groups have volunteers with medical training who fill this role. Police will often target the shortest or smallest person on a picket line when they charge, be ready. Police will also regularly let fascists through their police line for the purpose of grabbing a counter-protester and trying to drag them into the police line or the fascist line. Don't get separated from the body of the group. If anyone gets arrested, set up support including bail funds. After the action, have the organizing committee discuss how the action went and where the actions can be improved. A good rule of thumb for a successful pushback is outnumber the cops and the fascists by a strong margin. You want this because the purpose is not to go out and get your asses beat, nor to get arrested. And you want, if possible, to avoid kettling tactics, where law enforcement blocks a mass of counter-protesters into a confined area to initiate mass arrests. Numbers matter in these instances. Don't send yourself or others into a meat grinder. Buddy systems are key. Pair up with someone and stick together. Be ready for a potential arrest. Writing down the number for the National Lawyers Guild on your arm is smart. Being prepared to not say anything to anyone but your attorney. Talk to participants about this before you engage. Make sure they understand the risks and their roles. Social media grifters, trolls, and clout chasers will show up to counter protests along with the legitimate media. Avoid feeding their interests, which are likely counter to your own, and avoid being interviewed generally. If you're doing it right, a person in your group with media training is assigned to this role ahead of time and weeds out the cranks. A smart safety team that is practiced in de-escalation and has good discipline makes a huge difference in the success of such actions. Often in protest situations where the participants are attempting to provoke a response, 
The ability to dissipate that energy and not get sucked into the drama is especially valuable. You can find a fair amount of online resources for training in de-escalation. Organizations like the Crisis Prevention Institute have handy tips and best practices guides. Successful actions have coherent and clear messaging to the public that encourages mass participation in rejecting racism, bigotry, and fascism. A media team is important in keeping that focus. When you don't build strong messaging, the media and others with their own agenda get to frame the narrative and put you back in that trick bag. Always frame your own narrative. Add an element of fun and play when possible. Street theater, giant puppets, dance parties, banana block, music, props. Ms. Sunder remembers counter-protesters back in the day who dressed as rodeo clowns and mocked the white supremacists by wearing baking aprons and yelling, white flower, whenever the racists said white power, and throwing handfuls of flour into the air. One of my favorite parts of local anti-fascist counter-protests is one anti-fascist always dresses in a full costume and mask of Wario, Mario's evil doppelganger from the Mario Brothers. Anti-fascism isn't just counter-protesting. It can also be moving your co-workers, family, and friends away from fascist tropes and talking points. Injecting pushback in such a way as to get them to think about it without triggering their defensiveness. This is different from a debate or an argument. This is dropping casual one-off questions that pierce the thinking or assumptions behind fascism. Are your co-workers, neighbors, family, or peers dehumanizing houseless folk? Ask, why do you think such a high number of military veterans are homeless? Then listen to their answer. Generally, as a rule, ask only one question in a day and don't invest in the answer. Casual and light, not serious and judgmental. Don't make it a fight, just express friendly curiosity and then change the subject or move on. Some other time, ask them, why do you think it is that the majority of homeless in the U.S. are homeless for 90 to 150 days? Or, why do you think medical debt is one of the top drivers of homelessness? Or, did you know that a third of all homeless are children? You can do this with other topics where your aim is to counter the punching down at the vulnerable and less powerful, mostly by inserting an open-ended question which reframes the narrative and humanizes the people they are dehumanizing. Hearing and understanding the fear and needs behind the political rhetoric of blaming the most marginalized for conditions is also critical, so that some of these fears and needs can be addressed. If you love the working class for all its flaws and limitations, and I hope this is something you cultivate, then your goal is compassion and solidarity. People can change, can learn, can grow. If your conversations are just a push-pull of conflicting views, or if you are being judgmental at all, that's less effective than genuinely listening to your coworker or friend and journeying with them to understand their views without reinforcing or entrenching them deeper into those views. Practice this and don't rush. Little steps, not every conversation leads to a deeper place. If you want to really nail it, be a respected organic leader yourself and influence those around you. If you suck at your work or can't be counted on by your peers, your opinions will carry almost no weight. Are your peers buying into anti-teacher propaganda that paints educators as groomers? Consider basic points that undermine their story and practice short, innocent, open-ended questions. A friendly prompt like, Tell me about a teacher that made a positive difference in your life or your children's lives. Redirects away from media hype, moral panic outrage narratives, and back into grounded, positive experiences. Understand I am not encouraging you to attempt to reform hostile people. The guy with a swastika tattoo, that's not who you want to engage. You want to talk to people who are more likely to be moved. I'm not saying clan members can't be moved. I'm saying you can and should influence 10 people with somewhat nebulous politics with the same amount of effort and time it takes to move one hardcore white supremacist or a QAnon member. Move the 10. Even better, identify organic leaders in your workplace, people who are respected and have followers. Moving a workplace leader means their followers are also moved and has high value as smart organizing. This is one of the challenges to be radically normal while still being yourself. I'll dive deeper into this concept in discussing strike support in the next episode of Sunder. But it kind of comes down to this. Some in leftist circles define themselves by how they are not like their opponents, but also how they aren't, quote, normies, unquote, and their rhetoric and approach to others may be through that lens of difference and separation. Their words and choices say to themselves and others, I am not like you. 
being radically normal means finding the commonality and experience and being more of a sleeper agent if you really want to make it exciting, but just being a relatable person who is also an anti-fascist, or who also cares passionately about work conditions, or climate extinction, or union democracy, or reproductive rights. Not hiding who you are, but not making it your only defining characteristic. A soccer mom socialist is more embedded to influence their community and build power than someone selling socialist newspapers on a street corner. An anti-fascist church deacon, or bus driver, or nurse, moves people towards anti-fascist sentiment in a way that ten anonymous figures in black block cannot. Embedding yourself in your community means you are invested in the well-being of your community, and that's where you want to be to change conditions and challenge the bigoted, racist, and fascist elements attempting to make their own inroads into school boards, government, and with their co-workers. Be radically normal while being yourself and not denying your identity. Anti-fascist organizations in the U.S. do a lot of work monitoring fascist groups and individuals, and this work is valuable in building a community-based intelligence network that can flag when a coworker hired on is a Nazi, or a neighbor has fascist tattoos, or a member of law enforcement is also in the 3% militia, or the school board member who is posting transphobic memes online, the local business owner who assaults homeless people. When the Black Lives Matter protests in Colorado were being infiltrated by law enforcement, for example, it was local anti-fascist networks that first flagged a paid informant or undercover police officer. When known fascists show up to Portland, local anti-fascist organizations post biographies and flag their presence. Anti-fascism is in part building that beloved community where people feel connected to each other, are empowered, and raise each other up instead of competing in a race to the bottom. Real community solidarity is the biggest threat to fascism and to capitalism. You get real community solidarity through outreach, showing up for each other's fights, and recognizing them as the same struggle and fight, not just once, but multiple times, organizing as the goal, never a one-off mobilization. A lot of people don't know what they are. They don't know if they are a capitalist or an anti-capitalist. They know something isn't working for a lot of people. In contrast, most people know or believe they aren't fascist, but not as many know if they are an anti-fascist. I would like more people to explicitly identify as anti-fascist in a time where the neoliberal promises are breaking down, while the powerful are doubling down on scapegoating the least powerful and most atomized of society. I want you to resist, in whatever way you are able, the return of fascism. You say, but that's true you say socialism ideology. in Cuba didn't work. Did capitalism in Cuba work? Socialism in Cuba didn't come out of a model. It came out of the failure of capitalism in Cuba. And what happened to socialism in Cuba cannot be understood from beyond the fact that it sits on the periphery of the greatest empire in world history. Right? Uh, did socialism in Mozambique work? No. But one has to understand that, obviously, in terms of the conditions of Mozambique, its social resources, its place in the world. But then so you're it, I, mean, you, I can point to I can point to a hundred capitalist societies which we could say fail, fail in Aaron's terms, in terms of liberty. Well, that, look at the number of capitalist dictatorships in history. Indeed, my fear today with Trump with the xenophobia that people are being appealed to, is that just as it was said in the 1930s, he who speaks of fascism without speaking of capitalism should remain silent. I fear today that he who speaks of capitalism without speaking of fascism should remain silent. It may be we will turn to socialism because the alternative in the name of individual freedom is to treat everyone else as an asset. In the next episode of Sunder, I'll discuss my later years in prison as well as the subject of strike support. This episode marks the midpoint of season one. I really appreciate all the listeners who have given feedback, who have patiently journeyed with me as I have improved my audio recording and editing skills. I continually promise slash threaten to start a Patreon and will eventually... I envisioned a tighter release schedule originally, but I have a host of commitments and priorities that come first, and the added time to write, edit, and record between each episode has been used to hopefully keep the narrative strong and the vision intact.
I do this podcast in part because I want more working class, non-college educated voices speaking on conditions and potential solutions. Like many in the U.S., I have some education post high school, but no degree. Two-thirds of Americans over 25 have no college degree and are underrepresented in the political realm. The incarcerated and ex-convict demographic is also underrepresented, and I'm glad to be one of the voices from that perspective. I do this podcast as well because I want you to consider whether you identify yourself as a capitalist or as a socialist or something else and why. I want you to consider what it will take to change conditions in your life and your family's life and how you can be part of that. The rap artist Lupe Fiasco says, quote, if you're not an actor, then you'll never be a factor, unquote. There's no laying back in the cut and waiting to see how things shake out. This decade is go time. Subscribe and catch the whole tale. There's more to this story of bank robbery, prison, politics, and taking action in a troubled world. You can help by rating and reviewing the podcast. I'm purposely not on social media, so I rely on you to spread the word about Sunder. Send a link to the podcast to a friend today. Sunder is written, edited, and produced by Brian Denning. The theme song is by Holy Sons. You can contact Sunder at podcastsunder at gmail.com. Support the work being done here by subscribing on Patreon. Even better, become a dues-paying, participating member of your local DSA chapter. You are braver than you know and absolutely have the ability to change this world. Good hunting.